Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Kevin Scherer. Kevin is the former president, CEO, and chairman of Amgen, the world's largest biotech company, where he led its expansion over two decades from $1 billion to nearly $16 billion in annual revenue. Kevin has been involved with more than 20 successful CEO transitions, and he continues to advise CEOs of global corporations. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks, Ursula. It's, uh, it's great for me, too. So in your book, The CEO Test, that I know you co-authored with uh, Adam Bryant, you talk about um, tactical skills for CEOs, which I thought was such a great topic for a book. There's so many kind of trait-related leadership uh, books out there, and I, I found the, the book quite valuable and inspiring. And you, you, you mentioned in the book this perfect example of uh, leading in a crisis, which is the pandemic right now. So can you talk a bit about what you've seen in terms of, of companies dealing with the pandemic? And one thing that I in particular noticed was capitalizing on urgency. That's not something I've heard somebody talk about before. Sure. Um, maybe we could start with just a, a, a general couple of comments on, on how, how to deal with a crisis and, and probably more sadly, how so many companies don't. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first thing you, you have to do is realize you are in a crisis. And, and what a crisis means is that urgent action is required. And if you don't take it, things could get existentially bad. Mm -hmm. And you could pick you know, many, many examples, but they, they tend to, when poorly managed, have a similar thread, which is that the leader doesn't, doesn't grasp the reality of the moment and tries to turn the inevitably uh, incomplete facts that, that he or she has into some kind of narrative they wish were true. Right, yeah. And so they, they find themselves falling into characterizing the situation based on incomplete facts, and then they have to backpedal later. So they, they lose the most valuable commodity they have as a leader in the moment, which is their own credibility. Mm. And then it can cascade down from there. It can be, we, we don't have the right sense of urgency on the actions we don't try to find out the real root cause. We don't assign to responsible people very clear tasks that are inevitably a short time frame because you're in a crisis. We don't follow up and make sure they're measured uh, to their accomplishment. We don't understand the totality of the stakeholder ecosystem in which we have to operate, which is often uh, most of the people you don't control, the press, the government, Right. Uh, social media, your own, uh, your own uh, employees. So it, it, it tends to be a cascading doom loop where one bad thing <laughs> uh, reinforces another bad thing and, and, and away you go. The next thing you know, you're both. And so, so that, is, that is so often the pattern because CEOs are people who got the job because they can make things happen. Generally, they they have confidence. They want to show they're in charge and in control. They want to be decisive. But when you move out without the facts and without fully understanding the totality of the situation, inevitably, you're going to come to a bad place. And, and the pandemic fits every one of those. Hmm. And, and I don't care where you point politically, medically, uh, everybody's struggling. Now, this is a problem of, of gigantic complexity. Uh, and unprecedented scale and, and, and dimension. Sure. But the companies that I work with have, have consistently put, uh, and I'm proud of them, 
their staff first. They they thought about the safety of their staff. They thought about the personal situation at home. So many of their younger staff have to manage with their families and their children. And so I, I I've been proud of the people I've worked with, and they've been they've been honest with their shareholders to say, look, we we're in a situation here that's that's difficult to forecast, and and we're doing our best to do the core work. And then the next thing they focus on is their customers. And they've been financially responsible and have said, hey, look, 2020, 2021, they're probably going to be, in a sense, if not lost years in a, in a profit growth point of view, they're certainly going to be a pause. So they've been honest with their investors. So I, I think American business uh, presented with an unprecedented challenge of monumental scale uh, has done in in general a pretty darn good job, and hmm. I'm I'm uh, I'm pleased. Uh, this is a situation where, uh, fortunately for the CEOs, it, it it's not singular. Everybody's in it. It's not your fault. Uh, the uh, the impact is pretty obvious. So there's no denying the reality. And so this is from a company point of view, as difficult as it is for everybody, and I, I want to underscore that, as a crisis management uh, challenge to a CEO, it, it's much more straightforward than, say, one where you're singularly the company, the facts are very unclear, everybody's bearing down on you. Right. We're all in this one together, and that, sure. makes it, that, that makes it a bit easier to deal with. That's yeah. a long answer, but it's a it's a big question. <laughs> it certainly is, and uh, I think that makes the pandemic unique in a certain sense. In that it's a shared crisis uh, among all of us, including all your stakeholders, as well as yes. um, you know the the folks connected with the company in some way. I wonder in in a perhaps less universal crisis scenario that as CEO, how do you know how engaged to get? personally, because what I see happening sometimes is that uh, it gets dealing with a crisis gets delegated or it's it's handled in a way that doesn't suggest a sort of oversight by the CEO necessarily. Yeah. And then you end up having to get involved because it just devolves in the way that you described. Yeah, um, good. It, it's It's a it's kind of a universal question, even even not in the crisis context. I'll answer the question about the crisis, but mm -hmm. but one of the things about the CEO job and what makes it so challenging and and at its best uh, invigorating is you, you have to operate across a gigantic range of tasks. Some of those are inside the company, some outside, and you have to operate uh, for any given task at a variety of details, maybe de altitude, I call it. Maybe it's a strategic engagement level. Maybe it's right down on the ground. You know, how that factor do yesterday? So, so choosing the task and the altitude for that task to focus on is a is a key CEO skill. Mm -hmm. And crises come in a variety of different flavors. And implicitly, I think what you're referring to is the existential crisis. It's it's the thing that's going to either you know. Pro, you know, really damage the company, cost the CEO his or her job. I mean, that kind of crisis. And, and I'm a fan that, that when the crisis hits, you've got to go down in altitude and, sh and shorten the time constant. That is, you have to be involved. You have to talk to people in the front lines. You have to have frequent reports from the team that you've assigned to uh, handle the crisis. And if you delegate a crisis, <clears throat> you might get lucky and it might work out. But more often than not, it'll it'll uh, blow up on you. And then you're no longer in control of events and it just gets worse. So <clears throat> I'm a fan of, of, of a bias for frequency of interaction and uh, uh, going down at, at a detailed level until you're sure that things are on a steady pace and you're, you're now in a more stable situation, waiting until you have to go low in altitude and, and shorten the frequency of interaction. You've probably lost already. Yeah. And I, I think what is 
contributing to that too is a problem that some leaders have in ensuring that bad news gets to you because uh, depending on well, the, the, yeah, the, the whole yeah. The, one, one of the things we <clears throat> we talk about in the book is is a whole chapter on listening, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I had a lot to learn in that regard for sure. But but as CEO, the whole what I call listening ecosystem is biased to prevent bad news from getting to you mm-hmm. or or certainly not getting to you early. And if all you do is say the information I receive as a matter of course is sufficient and accurate and complete, you're kidding yourself. Right. You, you've got to have all kinds of <clears throat> uh, sources of information and you've got to create an environment where it is okay to share challenges. I think the, the GE situation <clears throat> was, was a classic where it, it was reported that, that during its troubles, that a thing called success theater was created where it just wasn't possible to, <laughs> to, to share bad news because yeah. the response would be, well, aren't you on the team? Can't you right. do better? What's yeah. wrong with you? Um, and so it's really the CEO's responsibility to both create an ecosystem of information that's complete and create a psychological environment where it's okay to, uh, to share concern. Now, the CEO's also got to say, okay, I, I agree that that's a challenge. What, what ideas do we have to deal with that challenge? Right. You can't let a CEO sort of all the, in, in terms of the famous HBO article from a long time ago, you can't have all the monkeys end up on your back, <laughs> but, but you got to have an environment where it's okay to identify the monkeys. Then let's try to figure out how we're going to work with them. Yeah. Well, you, I thought you did a great job in the book of explaining about having a simple plan. I mean, this was more related to strategy, but I, I thought yeah. you really clarified that whole idea of the executive summary with the n- metaphor of not even having your your sea level team dumping a pile of puzzle pieces at your feet <laughs> rather than presenting a, it, like here's how I see this picture and, yeah. and well, the way the way I used to uh, try to to bring that point across I'd say um, all of our problems or opportunities are a mosaic that is it has many many tiles in the mosaic each tile's a fact or a situation. And we never have all the tiles, never, never, never. Mm-hmm. But w- would you please guess what the picture is? What, what do you think in a summary level is the problem or the opportunity or the situation? And, and it, I'm mixing metaphors here, but it kind of goes back to the old Mark Twain thing. You know, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. And so <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, it, it, people have a tendency to just keep talking without ever really getting to the point and and that and simple could be re- simple plan could be replaced by clear plan mm-hmm. and and when i counsel people now and they're talking about some opportunity or a strategy i i i just say hey what's the big idea T- tell me in a sentence or two what the big idea is and if you can't do that you're, you're probably haven't finished your intellectual work yet. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a really powerfully clarifying question. You don't want to intimidate people. You don't want to make them feel bad. But, but, but if you don't know what the big idea is, you're probably lost. Yeah, I thought that was really clearly presented in the book in terms of, of how you can bring forward an idea in a simple way, but not oversimplifying it and being able right. to answer, even to, to present it in that clear way and then communicate that to people. That's yes, it's actually, as you know, it, it's, it's quite complicated to take a, a situation that inevitably has many elements and, and, and it's not a photograph, it's a movie and et cetera. And with clarity, characterize it accurately. That, that takes a lot of insight. A simple plan is very, very far from simple in formulating it and, uh, and making sure it's right. But once you've got it, it is a very powerful aligning device and everybody involved can get it. 
Yeah, I thought, uh, yeah, I agree. And strategy can be such an intimidating thing for people, or they've had this experience of you spend three days or a week and you end up with a big thick binder or a huge computer file and then nothing gets done with it. This has... I, I, I taught yeah. for a bunch of years at, at, uh, at Harvard Business School strategy and, and the complexity with which uh, many people approach the topic is, is understandable, uh, but, but they skip over, hey, what are we trying to do here anyway? Mm -hmm. what, don't, don't tell me all the details. Tell me what, what's the objective. You know, and, they, I, and I use, because I'm a military guy, military metaphors, I said, hey, look, the big idea is we're going to land in France and drive to Berlin. That's the big idea. And, and what the people in the strategy department want to start telling you is how many boats we got, who's in the first boat, what times the boat hit the beach, without ever talking about the big idea. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, so crucially important. And it's one that people need to hear over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A question that you ask that I thought was so penetrating is that, the question of can you lead transformation as opposed to can you lead change? Because for decades, change management and leading change has been like a catchword in the business world. Yeah. And you're and talking industry, about it. Cottage industry. Yeah. And, right. Exactly. And you've brought it to another level that I thought was um, so valuable. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that process? Um, yeah. It, First of all, first light, I completely agree with you. It, it is enormously difficult. And the first thing to understand is why is it so difficult? Uh, my experience says that, that the strongest force in organizational life, maybe personal life too, is the status quo. To, to a degree that cannot be overstated, people don't want to change. And they don't want to change, not because they're bad people or lazy or et cetera. Um, I think it's in our DNA. Safety is what we seek. We don't want to go outside our comfort zone. Safety is how we survive as a species. And the status quo is a kind of safety. It's, it's imperfect, but we know what it is. And we know how to deal with it. We have, we have our relationships set. We know how to keep score, et cetera. So, when somebody says, let's really transform, that is terrifying because what we're really saying is we are now going to take on the strongest force in organizational life, which is the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so people, first of all, um, in their transformation efforts, don't fully appreciate the power of the force they're working against. And so everything they do uh, can, can, in that circumstance at least, be, be underpowered against the force. Hmm. And so I think John Cotter uh, many years ago did, did a really nice job of, of talking about the guiding coalition, the frequency of focus, the, uh, the end goal well-defined, the processes that you have to develop, um, the, the early wins, the enlisting uh, people, the CEO support, uh, the changing of people, if you have to, the changing incentive systems. It's, it's a real all-in effort. And it, it, it isn't easy. It isn't uh, somebody's uh, sort of part-time job. Uh, and, and it takes total CEO support. And you've got to put your best people on it. So it, it, it's, not, um, it's not a small effort. It's not a side effort. It's central. And it doesn't, it doesn't succeed uh, very often. Mm. Well, it was interesting to me that you pointed out the, that clarifying what won't change is as important as clarifying what will change. Because to address that discomfort that people have, there's a solid foundation on which people can still rest, which are mission yeah, and purpose. Having clarity of what we're trying to do. Transformation also requires a simple plan. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's, here are the things that are stable. We're not going to change. And inevitably, it's a series of processes, organization design, 
or uh, implementation uh, or compensation. It's all of those things. We're willing to change everything except the core and being able to identify what the core is, is uh, central to success. Sure. Well, and a couple of things that you said make me think about entrepreneurial companies, which is uh, certainly the folks that I work I work with. Yeah. But the focus on everyone is resistant to change. What's your experience in terms of working with entrepreneurial companies? Because entrepreneurs, by necessity, have to get comfortable with discomfort and. So it's a different environment in my experience, having worked in both a corporate setting and, and having had several companies myself, that the kind of person who thrives in a, in a corporate setting isn't necessarily the same person who thrives in an entrepreneurial one. So how do, how do, they, how do leaders in an entrepreneurial setting really evaluate if they're the right people to be there or is it time to move on? And uh, or can they develop the necessary skills? I had a conversation with a CEO the other day who um, had that exact question for himself. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that that in an entrepreneurial world, um, that there are fewer um, constraints. Let me put it that way. In a, in a corporate world, you have a lot of constraints. You might have shareholders. You might have a very engaged board. Uh, you've got a lot of customers who've been with you a long time. Mm -hmm. you, you, just, you just have a lot more people whose needs you have to meet. Right. And you've got, you've got a past that you can't just wish away. You've got a culture. So you, you, you've got a lot of, of, of fixed things that, that guide you, but also constrain you. Mm -hmm. And in an entrepreneurial space, a smaller company, a startup company, there's a lot more freedom of action. Sure. And, and there aren't so many uh, stakeholders that you have to satisfy. Of course, the problem is you may not have any profit. You may be running out of cash. The product <laughs> might not work. Right. Your venture capital folk may be pulling out on you. I don't want to convey that in any way it's easy. It's not. It's, it's mm -hmm. just different. Mm -hmm. And so- the entrepreneurial leader tends to be uh, more engaged with every detail, uh, tends to be uh, more intimate with, with the product, the company. It's a more freewheeling space. There's less concern about, hey, you know, what was our long range plan? What, what, what's exactly our culture? What are our processes? It's just a much more uh, free flowing place. And if you're an individual who, who needs to know everybody in the company, uh, you, you really don't like process very much. Uh, <laughs> you don't like having so many bosses. Uh, then it's probably time to turn it over to somebody who is, is more comfortable in that space. And, and builders are often not operators. Mm -hmm. And I'm not being critical of either one. It's a different skill set. Sure. Uh, some, some like, you know, famous people, Jeff Bezos recently in the news, you know, he, he's a guy who, who went from entrepreneur to a, you know, a giant uh, builder of organizations. But, mm -hmm. but that's a rare thing. Yeah. Most people who are entrepreneurs like being entrepreneurs. And when, when the company gets to a size that, that it requires process, they can't know everybody. There's lots of stakeholders. They feel a lot of constraints. Uh, it's probably time to move on. Hmm. Yeah, I think people, I mean, certainly when I work with clients in that situation, they're debating, do I have the ability to develop these skills? And second, do I even want to? Both I, of think, which are I, think, pertinent. I think Ursula, that, that uh, I see that too. And, and I think the, both those questions are good questions, but the latter question is probably the central question. I'm a real believer that, that we all have much more capability to grow in every dimension than we give ourselves credit for. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the question is, do you want to go outside your comfort zone? Most people don't, because that's what it takes to grow. And yeah. so 
many people just say, you know, I'm pretty happy the way I am. I'm not sure I can change. I'm not sure I even want to change. And so I, I think I think I'm okay because if the company's growing in size and complexity and, and significance, the leaders have to grow too. They have mm-hmm. to. Yeah. And growth is hard. It's uncomfortable, uh, but it is very possible. And in fact, one of the reasons that Adam and I uh, spent the time to write this book is, is to try to give people some view of in some key areas, what, what growth for them might look like. And uh, so it, it's a lot of its personal choice. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's certainly situations where I, I think the CEO and their team sees an opportunity for transformation in anticipation of a shifting scenario, or they just see more opportunity in a different realm. But it's tough to disrupt the status quo. Oh. Uh, like, <laughs> if there's not an know, crisis. We, we, we look at all the, the normal metrics, you know, look at the companies that were on top when, when, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, and then look at where those companies are now. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just, it's Darwinian. And, you know, General Motors just announced this giant aspiration to completely turn their business upside down and go from gasoline to electric. I mean, I, I applaud their ambition and maybe they'll be the first one to ever do it. AT&T <laughs> tried to go from being a phone company to an entertainment company. We can see how that's going. Yeah. I mean, it, well. it, it is really hard. Yeah. And most, most companies can't do it. Hmm. Well, um, it, it makes me think about the shift that's happening in the business world now where uh, even the, the CEO of BlackRock is sort of jumping on the bandwagon of saying multi-share, multi-stakeholder focus and a, a broader perspective on business as an opportunity to do good in the world while uh, seeing uh, profit at the same time. And that's a um, I think for a lot of, especially legacy companies, that's a huge shift in perspective and therefore in where the, comp- the direction for the company. Do you see that happening? You know, um, I, I know it's uh, a, a timely discussion. Um, and, and one of my, my friends and colleagues, in fact, she was a board member at Amgen, Rebecca Henderson has, has uh written some books on reimagining capitalism, and mm-hmm. she's a very thoughtful person. I, I guess um, I think it's a bit of a red herring. Hmm. Uh, that is to, to assert that all companies really cared about with pro- is profit um, is, is not my experience. Yeah. Um, certainly, if you do not deliver financially, you will be replaced. Financially is table stakes. Sure. You know, there, there's the tyranny, it was called, I guess, of the or, hey, boss, do you want low cost or quality? Well, I want them both. Right. And, and this, this conversation kind of is in that zone for me. Um, people having uh, uh, plans for, for more diversity, plans for uh, a more green footprint, plans for people development, the whole idea of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Those are all fine. I mean, that, that, that's what companies ought to do. And, and I don't know a CEO who couldn't say, hey, look, that's what I'm trying to do anyway. Right. I mean, we're trying to be good citizens in our town. We, we're, we're obeying the law. Uh, but, but it isn't like uh, we just don't care about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that, that here's how you're going to know it's real. When you see in CEO compensation calculations, these non-financial objectives show up and have weighting on how many stock options they get, what their bonus is, then you're going to know it's taken full root in the companies. Right now, it's conversation uh, and, and, and some efforts but it'll take full root when these non-financial things are in the CEO's pay envelope at a level commensurate with the financial elements. I think that will happen, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it hadn't yet. But I, I think the, 
the oversimplification that all companies care about is profit. They don't care about their employees, their community yeah. environment. That's just not true. Yeah. Well, it's vilifying capitalism and, and that's, it's well, too- that's a pop. That's a pop. That's one of the narratives, right? Yeah. One of the narratives is capitalism is bad. Um, right. I'm wondering what the alternative is that they like so much, but capitalism can be made <laughs> better. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, capitalism itself is a neutral entity. It's what people choose to do with it. And I agree. In my experience, most companies have an eye in that direction. I, I, what it really interests me is being able to infuse that to the extent that one of the things you describe of, of it showing up as a, as a performance measure for CEOs, yeah. it has yeah. to be infused or it's not going to be sustainable. You're I'm absolutely right. People, and I'm not saying this in a critical way, it, it kind of is fine. People do what they get paid to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an incentive, certainly. Yeah. Well, a lot of this, uh, if not every, all of this hinges on teams and being able to build a team that's going to be effective and perform at a high level and be responsive, all of the things that you, you think of in a great organization. And I know that there's often a tension uh, with teams where one's loyalty or connection or bond with people can get in the way of really insisting on high levels of performance. So hanging on to people too long or people being in the wrong chair, that's kind of a, a repeated issue that one sees. Is that, can you talk a little bit about that and how to avoid that fit, that pitfall? Yeah, you, you, you're, you're right, Ursula. It's, it's a, it's a tendency that I, I know we all have. I, I, I sure did. Um, sort of how could it not be that way? We, we tend to pick people and work with people that we have uh, at least common values with. Uh, hopefully we have some human connection. Mm -hmm. uh, we will have gone through difficult times together. We will have achieved things together. Uh, we will know about each other's personal life. And so inevitably uh, these, these bonds of of connection are many and they form and you care about the team member and you know that if you have to make a change that it will damage in some way that person. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's not surprising that it's, it, it's such a challenge. Um, but I, 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 what I tried to do and I encourage my clients to do is, is have very clear communication to your team member uh, what the expectation for performance is. Mm -hmm. And, and there, there are sort of three kinds of ways I would look at. <clears throat> One is, can, can you achieve the tasks that are assigned to you and your group? Those might be financial, they might be operational, they might be service, they might be manufacturing, they might be whatever they are. And if you can't, I'll call those hit the numbers. They're not always numbers, but I'll use that phrase. Mm -hmm. If you can't hit the numbers, it's, it's kind of, we don't really have much to talk about. It's, pre, it's pretty clear. Right. If, if you're in charge of sales and you just keep missing the sales objective, no matter how much I like you, my, I, I'm going to have to do something. That, that's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. but, but the ones that are a lot harder are the two, what I'll call qualitative ones. One is, how do you interact with others at the firm? Are you respected? Are you trusted? Are you a good team member? Are you, uh, are you constructive? Do you, tell, do you tell the truth? All that kind of stuff. In other words, does the team want you there? And I don't mean team like just a few people. I mean, your subordinates, et cetera, customers, maybe, maybe the government. And then the, the third thing is your behavior. Are, are you somebody who does deliver all the numbers, is a, is a great performer on the, on the outcome side, but you just behave in a way that is not consistent with the values of the firm? And I'm not talking about easy stuff like um, easy in the sense it's clear you got to go, integrity or harassment mm -hmm. or that stuff. I'm talking mm -hmm. about more subtle stuff. And, and that's the area that that. I find CEOs and other leaders are most challenged in dealing with is, is the so-called, I deliver the numbers, but behave badly person. 
Right. And so it takes some insight and courage on the CEO's part. Uh, but if you don't hold people accountable for all three of the performance measures, hit the numbers, be a good team member, and be a role model leader, you're going to end up having rot at the top and it'll get you. So part of the loneliness of the CEO job is you got to make you got to make sometimes hard decisions that work against your heart, but you, you know the bigger uh, uh, loyalty is to the enterprise. And so you got to make the call, but there's no doubt about it. It's tough. And, uh, and I've never met anybody who, who believes they fired somebody too early. The, the yeah. number of people who we've waited too long on, well, I got lots of names for that, but sure. uh, it's tough, but, but yeah. you got to do it. Well, you did something pretty dramatic when you became CEO of Amgen and you you were really blunt with your team coming in. And uh, could you tell us a bit about that and, and why you did it? Um, are you talking about the dinner? Uh, yeah, the, the, the not, <laughs> not, I'm not going to tolerate and I'll let you fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, it, first of all, that really did happen. Um, so, uh, it was it was kind of a, a lighthearted uh, situation. Uh, I'd been the number two person at Amgen for, for a long time, uh, almost eight years. And so I really, really knew the company. I knew the people. And, and as we moved into to the 2000s, we knew the company was going to be different. We, we'd have to have competition. We knew we had to change a lot of things to develop a pipeline. We were the cupboard was pretty bare. And, and a number of the people had been there a long time. They were quite financially well off. And they said, you know, I just, I don't want to change. This place used to be entrepreneurial. It's going to get big. It's not really for me. And so for a variety of reasons, um, I, I had a situation where I wanted to and needed to recruit a lot of new senior leaders. There, there were one or two who'd been, been with me all eight years, but but the larger group, maybe six or seven of them were brand new and they all, they all kind of came in at the same time. So I, I'm a big fan of, of, of having uh, time with the team. And so we had this dinner and I had seen in my career at, um, at, at frankly, Amgen and the place I worked before, um, it wasn't a team environment. Uh, People were, were politicking all the time. They were knifing each other. They were going around uh, uh, the chain of command to report. It, it, was, it was pretty dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. and, and I just, I couldn't tolerate that. So I said, hey, you guys, uh, it happened to be they were all guys at that moment. I said, hey, you guys, uh, let me tell you, uh, if any of you are politicians, and here's exactly what I mean by politicians, and I, I, I told them what I meant. I said, I will figure it out and I will fire you. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know something? I'm a really good politician myself. How do you think <laughs> I sure. got this job? Right. And you will look to me like your four-year-old uh, kid telling on his brother or sister. You will be that transparent to me. Don't mm -hmm. even dare try. And I smiled and, and kind of, and everybody's sort of nervous laughter, but they knew damn well I meant it. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it, it, it worked out okay. We, we were pretty, pretty, pretty good team and, and uh, we did some good stuff. And so it was kind of a, uh, uh, an extemporaneous thing, but, but I'm glad I did it. And I think it, I think it was a positive thing. Mm. And why did you do it in that way? Uh, because I, I had experienced uh, at other places and at Amgen itself, such negativity around top team going after each other. I wanted to make sure we had a team that was aligned, that trusted each other, that supported each other. And I just wanted to say we're new. And it isn't the only thing I said that night, but uh, I wanted to say, hey, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be politicians. Hmm. And it was about trusting each other and, and getting everything out in the open. Yeah. Oh, that's great. But, it, but I did it because of my experience of probably 10 years of working in team environments that were anything but uh, congenial, collaborative, supportive, and effective. And I just wasn't going to tolerate that during my time as CEO. Yeah. Well, I, 
I uh, <clears throat> applaud your stamina for lasting 10 years in that kind of environment. But uh, it amazed a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, of course, teams operate in the larger culture of a company. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how CEOs play a role in developing culture, guiding culture, as opposed to, and, and perhaps that's not the right term, but in concert with uh, the other people in the organization, how do they get their say in all of that? Yeah, it, it's, it's easy to say and it's hard to do. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I believe that the CEO is totally responsible for the culture, period. Hmm. Um, and here's why. <clears throat> in my view of, of organizational life, culture is uh, defined by two, two things or three. One is what is it described to be? And culture is, is a set of behaviors that we expect of each other. And most places, those behaviors are um, buzzwords that they're not ever defined, they're not ever modeled, they're not ever taught, they're not ever enforced, they're not ever measured. It's like a bunch of virtue signaling that, that people look at and say, that, that's just complete hypocrisy, nobody right. means it. So the first thing the CEO has to do is say, here are the values that matter, here's exactly what they mean, and here are the behaviors that, um, will will make those values come to life and i am going to demand that the top team model those behaviors and and if you are an unrepentant value felon i will fire you mm. and it, there's some values like integrity you know one strike and you're out others like don't respect people etc maybe you get counseled etc but if you're an unrepentant value felon i will fire Next thing you have to do is measure what are, the, what are the behaviors and values as experienced by the team and the employees on the ground. You got to have real social data. You can't just depend on anecdotes. You got to hire for uh, a belief in the values. You've got to evaluate people each year. Hey, did they live our values? This is not easy stuff, mm -hmm. but without a very clear system, social data, and the, and the leaders are role models for the, for the values, your, your culture is just going to be whatever it is. You're, you're not managing the culture. You're just, right. you're just swimming in the sea. Yeah. And this can be done. Uh, it's not easy, but it can be done. And uh, I don't think very many companies are uh, as diligent on this as they should be. And, and most companies I know have, have a set of values, et cetera. But, but they've got room to embed them more deeply, enforce them more vigorously, and be more curious about what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah. Well, there's a great quote in the book, you can tolerate a little heresy, but not a lot. I thought that really summed yeah. that up well. Yeah. It, 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 if, you don't, if you don't embrace the values of the firm, you shouldn't be there. Yeah. I mean, you just shouldn't be there. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I, you can tell I'm passionate. <laughs> well, I love hearing that because I agree with you. It's enormously challenging. And it's also something that can make or break a company. I've yeah. And, 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 the, and the staff, as, as you know, we were all junior people once, the staff can instantly figure out if the top team's modeling the values or they're all a bunch of damn hypocrites. Oh, it's, sure. It's so easy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that, in that vein, and as my last question before we get to the rapid round, racism, diversity, and inclusion have become such, and appropriately have become so much in the forefront of uh, business and looking at those issues within companies. How do you deal with those deeper issues when there are, I mean, it's so complex and they're societal, obviously, elements that are, are so really in part of that it 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 it, it is um maybe the the most challenging organizational issue you can imagine mm. i'm gonna give a kind of long answer because it's not a simple question and there's not a simple answer sure 
I think for leaders, the first thing you have to say is this really matters to me. I'm not I'm not doing this because it's the it's the issue du jour. It, I really care. This really matters to me. Second thing you have to realize is that uh, people with different backgrounds uh, experience organizational life differently than you did, and so. You have to you have to realize that 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 people of color, uh, women, uh, uh, people of different sexual orientation, all all the all the ways we think about diversity, those people experience organizational life in a different way than you did, mm-hmm. and it isn't it isn't up to them to totally uh, adapt to the organization. They have they have to live the values, but but the organization has to give them a voice somehow. And, and, and we had success in, in having uh, interest groups that, that gave the, the major diverse communities a real voice, and you have to listen. Next thing you have to do is demand representation. You can't just say, oh, well, we don't have a pipeline, so therefore, you got to say, we're going to create a pipeline, and you got to mean it, and you got to focus on it. Yeah. Next thing you can't do is just say, hey, we're obeying the law. The EEOC says we're doing fine. Therefore, we are doing fine. Mm-hmm. Th- that's such a table stakes, low level sort of objectives that, that you're not really serious. Uh, you've, you've got to listen to people when they uh, express their concerns. And you've got to do enough all staff surveys. You know what people really think. And after all that stuff, Ursula, you might make a little bit of progress. Uh, this is a long, long journey. But if you don't do all the things I just said and have representation in senior management and on the board that's real, uh, we're not going to make any progress. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that whenever some tragic thing happens in the greater society, that all the CEOs walk out and have these nice statements of whatever they're going to say. And I call those virtue signals. They, they don't change anything. They're just, or, hey, we're going to give $50 million to these small you know, groups out in society. And that's really, no, you got to change things at home. Not a bunch of platitudinous statements and giving of money to do good groups. You got to change things at your company. Yeah. That's what matters. I agree. I think that virtue signaling is is such a great phrase for what you, we see happening, and it's it's well, it happens hard. Everywhere. It happens yeah. in politics. It's, right. It it you know don't get me going, but it it <laughs> it people get away with it. I I want to know what's happening in the company. How mm-hmm. many diverse vice presidents do you have in your top one hundred? Are they all in staff jobs, or do they have real jobs that are Staff jobs are real jobs. I don't mean to be negative about staff jobs, but do, do you have PL jobs where you really, you're really putting it on the line? What's your pipeline look like? What's your social data say? Um, how, do you, how do you hear from diverse people? What's your retention of them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? This is a management task and leadership task. It's not a virtue signaling exercise. So good to hear you say that. I, I think that uh, really gives some concrete things that leaders can do in the moment to start addressing yeah. that issue. Yeah. Well, I always ask three rapid round questions at the end of these interviews about impact. Are you game to go with those? Go ahead. Sure. All right. The first one is what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? The biggest thing I've learned in my post-CEO career is you can have impact without having power. And that, mm. that, is, that is a real revelation to me. And, and through my experience at, at teaching, at, at counseling people, hopefully this book will reach people. Uh, Im- impact does not require power. Um, you, you can have impact in a lot of different ways. Hmm. Absolutely true. We have impact every day, whether we're conscious of it or not. So yeah. what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? 
I, I think I've been willing to go outside my comfort zone and, and, and try things that either I'm not fully prepared to do or um, it's, it's risky. Uh, I'm not a crazy risk taker, but I, I, I've moved around in, in, in industries. I've moved around in roles in life. So I, I'm pretty game to go outside my comfort zone and, and, and try to learn and grow. Mm, so good. What's uh, one insider piece of advice that you would share with someone who's asking, how can I have more impact? How can I contribute more? I, I think have focus and get allies. Hmm. Not very many of us all by ourselves can do it. You got to have allies and you got to have focus. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this has been a real a lesson in the practical skills that a CEO has to have and a leader exercise in their company as a way to, to uh, move everybody forward towards the big goals that companies have. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ursula. I, I, I just like to close by saying, although the CEO job takes your very, very best and some days it's not great, the view is worth the climb. It is a, a great perch from which to develop yourself and, and to really help others and have impact in the world. It, it's worth aspiring to. Mm, that's great. Well, that is inspiring. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they reach you and where can they find the book? Uh, I can tell you where you can find the book. It's, it's on Amazon. It's all the places you can get the book. It's published March 2nd. I've, I've chosen uh, to not be a, a social media or LinkedIn presence uh, which people are trying to talk me out of. So maybe one of these <laughs> see me there, but um, I, I'd encourage people to, to grab the book. It's pretty self-explanatory and, uh, and, and take it from there. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Kevin. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Well, thank you, Ursula. It's great to meet you and uh, good to be with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Join me for more episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And help us spread the word, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. To discover more about your impact, schedule a business impact assessment, one-on-one -on -one with me, 60 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Go to workalchemy.com BIA to schedule your business impact assessment. This podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Cherokee, Tuscarora, Catawba, and Waccamaw Sioux and people. 